save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello. Welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Today we have a real treat for you. If you're a regular listener, it will come as no surprise that we tend to focus on the professional side of things on this podcast, but today we're going all in on the personal with our guest, Amy Stone. Amy is a therapist who specializes in working with adults and blended families, and there is no bigger blended family than my own. We talked for so long that I'm breaking our conversation into two episodes. In this first part, we talk about the different roles that members of blended families play, the challenges of disciplining children who aren't your own, and how to make sure everyone's needs are met when it comes to food and mealtime. You can learn more about Amy and the services that she provides on her website at amysaysso.com. I hope you enjoy our conversation. But first, a quick P.S. We replaced the chandelier just last week. As I mentioned to you in our conversation before getting on the podcast, I am very excited about this episode because I am a parent, step-parent in a very large blended family, and that is your area of expertise is helping blended families work to their full potential, I guess is one way to put it. Yeah. I'm excited to get into that, but as my listeners know, I am also a fan of ancestry and immigration, and so I always like to lead off with a question about my guests' past, how their families made their way to the United States, you know, where you are from originally. I love this question, and I'm very excited to answer it, although my answer is probably a little bit boring in terms of people who maybe have a more interesting, newer story. Today, I live in Miami, Florida, where I'm surrounded by people who have very rich and interesting change of country stories. My, my heritage um, in an official sense is, is European. I fall into the white Caucasian box on the census and my parents' families have been here for generations. So I don't have a super clear, perfect ancestry lineage, but my father's family is thought to be primarily from Northeastern France, close to the German border, like Alsace-Lorraine. And my mother's family has a really distinct and clear, well-known Irish lineage. So that's where those two groups come from. But my parents were born in the United States. Their parents were born in the United States. Their parents were born in the United States. So my mother's grandmother was born in the United States. And from earlier than that, I don't really have a clear picture. But once when my young daughter was in school, because it is a very common question in Miami, where are you from? Which means where were your parents born? Here. And they had International Day and they sent instructions to send an item, a food item from where your parents were born, but it was not supposed to be from the United States. (laughs) And we had an existential crisis in our family because I was like, uh, mac and cheese 
you know, apple pie, like, what can I do here? And right. um, when I went to the school, you know, I wasn't the only one in this situation, but uh, it was a funny moment in Miami history, but that's my distant past. I grew up, my parents were divorced when I was young and I grew up split between New York city and um, the Midwest. Okay. We're in the Midwest. My mom bounced around. So I spent some time in Missouri, in Kansas city. She grew up in Kansas city. So I usually say that as an answer, but she lived in Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas city, stuff like that. Oh, okay. So, so really into the Midwest. I ask in part because I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and my entire family is from there. That's right. (laughs) Going back at least several generations, in fact, I remember being told as a kid um, on my father's side, all of his grandparents, all four grandparents were born in the United States, which for a a Jewish family with Eastern European roots is uh, very unusual. My uh, mom's side is a little different. Her parents both made their way to this country uh, when they were little from Russia. My husband's family tree is similar to that, except they don't quite know. They lost track of where, so they, they believe that it's Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, but they don't, they don't actually, when his family exited, some of the lines got crossed. Thank you. That's, as I said, I just always find it very interesting, even if it's, uh, you know, a Western European (laughs) mix, that's still interesting to me. But let's, uh, let's move into the more relevant questions for the topic of this podcast. So to remind my listeners and to inform you, I am engaged to a woman who has six children of her own uh, in two sets of, I call them triplets, but they're not. They were just uh, born very close to about a year apart from each other. The older ones are, although one lives with us and one is soon to depart from our house. They are doing their own thing, of course. And then she has three younger ones, 10, 11, and 12, who uh, we are with all the time. And then I have two children of my own, both older and out of the house. So we're sort of a very big blended family with kids ranging from the age of 10 to 26. And so I have many, many questions. And I thought I would start with the kids and ask a general question and then get into some specifics about challenges that I've come across in trying to put our blended family together over the last three plus years. My first question is about the parents, though. How can step parents or step partners, I'll say, because we're engaged, not married, so technically I'm not a stepdad, although that's how I describe myself to most people at this point, because it's just a lot easier than explaining uh, anything else more complicated. What's a good way for them to go about defining their roles in each other's children's lives? That is a great question to start with. It's such a big. It is a big question. It is a big thing. And so it's really interesting. This is an exercise that I actually do with clients. And the way I take people through it is very similar to the way you would design an organizational chart for a company. And one of the reasons is, is to separate the titles from kind of the responsibilities right? Because titles can have like tremendous emotion with them. And you, I thought it was very interesting that you said that you were, you're referring to yourself as a stepdad, but you're not entirely sure that that's really what you are because you're not officially married yet. Stuff like that trips us up. And then the second part of that is that this awareness that everybody involved may have a different perspective. So if you see your role in the family as being a traditional, and I'm going to use the most stereotypical traditional version of this because it makes it very clear. So, but as a man, if you have a stereotypical 
you know, gosh, what was that beaver cleaver view of the man's role in the house? And that's your starting point. Your fiance may have a slightly different perspective. And so you guys are crossing in the night, right? You're not lining up. And the children, each of them individually, is going to have their own view. And what's really super important about this is that everybody decides this for themselves. There's no actual way to come in and say, I'm in charge, I'm the stepdad, and you guys all need to just see me as that, right? So each of them, and when you think about the people in your family, you may identify that you have that for everybody in your family, right? You know, you have a a way that you see your parents, you have a different way that you see the aunts and uncles in your life. You have a perception of the employers you've had, your friends. There's a lot of variety in there. And so it's okay that everybody has a different view from certain perspectives. And when you lay it all out like that, then you can begin to figure out what are the important things to you in designing your home, because sometimes they're not the same. Does that help? Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, because you and your you and your fiance can definitely talk about it. You can say, oh, I think this is a man of the house kind of thing. And she can say, oh, really? Because I think that's a handyman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in, I, in, you know, and you could have that conversation And when you find the places where you're not matching up, then you can realign. Yeah. And I think we have done a better job of that more recently. I moved into her house almost two years ago now. And for a long time, I wasn't sure what my role should be, what role she wanted me to play uh, in terms of bringing the kids up, disciplining them and so forth. And we did have a conversation, I would say about a month ago, where we really we sat down and talked about that and made more clear to one another what our expectations were, what our perceptions were, and tried to get things in line. And I think we now have, I, well, I can speak for myself and say, I am more comfortable in my role in that. That's the thing that really matters, right? In my experience, because, um, and I'm, you're a male and I'm a female. So it is sometimes different, but if I'm going through my day thinking that my success as a mom is evaluated by whether people eat the food I made, which is a a thing that women, it's a role women put on ourselves. And yet the food I'm making is like, not at all what the kids want to eat. That's a mismatch, right? And if I shift that to, and if I, you know, so if I talk to my partner and they're like, listen, all that's important is that the kids eat, right? And then I can shift my mindset to being like, hey, my role here is to make sure there's food offered to the kids. And then I feel comfortable in that I'm able to do that job and that I'm doing the right thing and that they, you know, I'm loved for doing it and welcome for doing it and not beating my head up against a wall. You've brought up a topic uh, that I, didn't prep you with, with the questions that I sent, but is one that's a, a fairly major one in our house. And that is food. I'm very strict in terms of when I eat. I better be eating lunch by noon because I don't have breakfast or I'm going to be a very cranky guy. Uh, and I generally want dinner around six or six 30. And because the house is so hectic and, you know, the kids get home from school and they snack and there's never a defined time really when we sit down and eat. So that causes some difficulty because if I'm going to make dinner, I want the kids to eat it and, you know, to sit and eat it. But 
if I make dinner, it may be that they've just eaten a half an hour before, and so they're not hungry. And what I've done, frankly, is sort of retreat from that responsibility. I don't really make dinner anymore, although I did on Friday night, coincidentally. But that was a, sort of an aberration because it just adds too much to my stress to have to worry about cooking something and having them eat it. Forget about liking it. Uh, that's hard enough because there are three of them and there aren't many things all three agree on. But uh, it's just something that I have, as I said, I've retreated from because it just causes me too much stress. You're not alone in that, right? Like this is this is a huge problem in, in families, not even blended families. It really is kind of an age-specific developmental thing also because like you know, two and three-year-olds, they don't eat very many things. And we're a lot more comfortable with um, kind of having two parallel meals with them. Like here are your chicken nuggets and I'm going to eat my own thing. And then when they're older and we want to do this together, there's a concept of a family meal. So I would, I, I would be curious whether or not your fiance had a similar idea about the evening family meal. Like, is that important to her? I think it is important to her. She is has much more regular hours now. So she's a nanny and in previous uh, jobs, she has uh, often come home very late. You know, sometimes she works noon to nine or something like that. Now she's on a more regular nine to five. And so she comes home and typically she gets dinner ready for the kids. Um, so we've moved into a more regular schedule in that regard. And I also should say that the stress I described in terms of making dinner for the kids is all on me. You know, they don't yeah. care, <laughs> you know, they're fine. They're fine that they just snacked and that at nine o'clock, they're going to have a sandwich or a bowl of cereal before they go to bed. You know, they're just, they're just living their lives. Yeah. And as, so do you enjoy cooking? I do sometimes. Uh, yeah. I was a single parent for many years with my own two kids when they were younger and uh, they would be with me. We, we, I shared, custody with their mom. And so they were with me half the time. And we were on a 252 schedule, which is probably familiar to uh, other divorced parents with children. So every other week they were with me five days and I committed to making dinner for all of us, at least two of those five days. And then one day when they were with me for two, nice because it was an opportunity, especially when they became teenagers, we knew we would sit around the table. And even if it took me an hour to make a meal that we spent five minutes eating, that was still worth it to me. Yeah. And so I think that it, it is, a, it is a wonderful thing, the family meal where you sit together and you, uh, you exchange things and people tell you about their lives on the flip side. It's a horrible thing when you spend 90 minutes or two hours or a day planning and you put together a meal <laughs> and then somebody walks in and is like, Oh, you know, I just had a sandwich on, you know, it's soccer practice. I'm going to go sit in my room. Like that's like, it just, it's a, it's a weird feeling. And so what, what kind of comes together is like the setting up of the house traditions, whatever it might be. And then, you know, if it's important and something that you and your partner agree on, then what you're kind of working towards is setting up the tradition and letting everybody know what to expect, figuring out what the sort of list of potential favorite meals is like, so one of the ways to start with this, which you may have already done is to just ask everybody, Hey, we're going to make a list of all the things we all like to eat. Right. And then you slowly introduce like, Hey, you know, two, three times a week, 
this is going to be what dinner time is. And you can announce it in advance, like, hey, tonight we're having, you know, whatever it is. To, like, so uh, in my house, we do Taco Tuesday and we've been doing it since, you know, so, and, and people, they will bring friends over and every, everybody knows, like my stepkids who are grown and flown, they're like, Tuesday's tacos, you know, <laughs> and it takes a little while. Because you're getting the buy-in from people that they're going to do it. And so there's two parts of it. One is you want to shift your mindset so that you're going to be happy eating your meal, no matter what it is. And you're doing the work for yourself and enjoying the process, not for the validation from anybody else, right? Which is a, I'll just throw that in there, but that's a big shift. And then the second thing is, is establishing it and communicating it so that you get the buy-in from everybody else. Um, and they want to be there. So then it's like, Hey, what's for dinner tonight? You know, is dinner at six 30. I want to make sure I make it or, or likewise, Oh my gosh, you know, I've got practice until seven 15. Can we please start at seven 15 or, you know, whatever it might be, because all of those exceptions work in a family. If everybody's working towards the same destination. I like the idea of announcing beforehand, maybe even in the morning as the kids are going off to school, Hey, we're making tacos tonight, or yes, I'm going to make the chicken fingers that I know you all like tonight. So when you get home, snack, but just be aware that at six o'clock, we're going to put dinner on the table. So we'll, exactly. we, we look forward to seeing you there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then everybody knows, like that's that communication piece. Okay, so we went off right. track. So I hope that is, I, I hope that it is, it is definitely something that all households go through. During the pandemic, my husband shifted his schedule. And so he was making the dinners for a while. He was really enjoying the shift. And one day, you know, he put all this effort in mm-hmm. and the kids picked up takeout with friends. And he was like, I can't believe it. And I was like, yes, this is this is life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's for sure. I think, and as you point out, in any family, blended or not, uh, you need to be uh, flexible. <laughs> yes, the day uh, it, you make steak and the kid says, "Oh, by the way, I'm a vegetarian." As of right. eight o'clock this morning. Yes, <laughs> and we do. We do have one budding vegetarian among the kids too. So, although he will eat chicken uh, so far, but I think he's ultimately going to be a vegetarian, which is terrific. He loves vegetables. So, uh, if we make a stir fry, then I know everybody's going to be happy because uh, he can pick out the vegetables and others can eat uh, the chicken. Well, so one other area that I have found uh, a lot of challenge in is the area of discipline, as I said, the, the younger kids are with us. They're 10, 11, and 12. They are terrific kids. They hardly ever misbehave. But there are some things that happen from time to time uh, that I will see. And again, prior to this conversation that uh, my fiance and I had uh, not long ago, uh, that really put me in a difficult position because I didn't know uh, how far I could go in disciplining them. And I'm curious to know from you what advice you would have for a step parent uh, when it comes to disciplining uh, a step child. This is really, this is the top thing that brings people to therapists, to life coaches, to a state of inner desperation. And it's often phrased as a difference in parenting styles. Although, and you guys do have two sets of kids. So you had your parenting style from raising one set of kids. So you do have it. Yes. Sometimes you have one person who's child-free. So they don't really have a parenting style so much as they're uncomfortable with what's happening. And it's a, you know, this is, this is a struggle, right? The other thing that is, I don't know if this is what's happening in your family, probably not actually, but sometimes there is like a sort of a tolerance thing that's going on because we do through repetition of years of sharing space with people in our house, we build up a tolerance and like 
you know, strategies for dealing with things for the people we've lived with for a long time. So say you've got a kid who has chronic allergies and they sniffle and you've lived with them for 10 years, you may have learned to phase that out. But if you're coming into that family and you've only been in the house for two years, you might be like, oh my gosh, why is this kid doing this all the time? I'm like, what am I going to do? And so those two things sometimes come together in a perfect storm. A high level way of the way that I look at it is that you are going to, you are going to set up some house rules, which are, are, are common for the house, right? Like this is, this is, a, this is important to me for where I'm living. This is where cleaning comes in, right? So uh, picking stuff up off the floor, cleaning the bathrooms, all the things that, you know, come together. We, these are the house rules, right? Like that are important. And those are agreed upon for the house. Those are not really par- parental decrees. Um, and you and, your, you and your partner will agree on those, right? And people skip this, but it's really a lifesaver to agree on this, right? Because then you're not saying, hey, I'm telling you to pick up your stuff. You're saying, hey, mom and I agreed, like we wanna pick up the toys at the end of the night. Like we want you to put your bikes in the garage, right. you know, stuff like that. It's a house rule. It's not really a parent rule. And then, so that's, that's an important part of blending the family. Like, cause you, it's everybody, like everybody knows that every house has different rules. You know, you're at Susie's house, you can wear your shoes in the house, you go to Leo's house, you take your shoes off at the door. Like we all know that. So when you're setting up the blended house, it's like, hey, these are the house rules. That's a way to diffuse that conflict of like, who are you to tell me this? Hey, this is what we agreed on for the house rules, right? Right. And obviously there's a learning curve for getting everybody up to speed. And it's also with 10, 11 and 12 years olds, they may have some thoughts on what the rules should be. You may not agree with them, but they may have some opinions trying to remember when, you know, so like so that's, you know, you know give like them it. a chance to, to provide input, even if you don't necessarily uh, yeah. make it a rule, but at least give they're old enough where they can participate in the process of putting them together. Yes. And then when it comes to consequences um, and discipline, right. Stuff like that. The standard sort of guidance is that if the, if the children, how old, I'm sorry. So let me back up. You guys have been, these kids were, and six, eight, six, seven, and eight when you met them? That's about right, yes. Okay, all right. So there is a sort of a guideline that if you meet the kids before they're like four or five, they will just accept you as um, a parental role and disciplinarian and much older than that. And they, they don't quite ever see you like that. They see you as an adult in their life. And in that case, one of the very standard things is that the, the step-parent, the secondary parent, the other adult, is really sort of deferring hardcore discipline enforcement to the biological parent, right? Almost as like a, it, like it's, it's lovingly detaching. Like, it's like, you know, it's like, hey, listen, you know, this is what happened. Would you help me with this issue with, with, our, with our shared child, right? Kind of thing. Like, so instead of going in guns blazing, you would detach, you would observe, you would see it, you would have your thoughts. And instead of acting, you would take your concerns to your partner. Well, that's very interesting because that's exactly what we agreed on when we sort of had this sit down where we mm-hmm. aired all of these things. And let me share the incident that sparked that conversation. One of my stepsons, we, we, we noticed that a chandelier in the living room was broken. It has uh, numerous uh, crystals, glass hanging from it, and two of them were missing. And we asked 
what had happened. And he said, oh, I knocked those off uh, accidentally. And we said, okay, where are they? And he said, oh, I threw them away because I didn't want you to know that I had broken the chandelier or, or in, so, in so many words. And Which is a thought process that only makes sense when you're a teenage teenager. Yeah, well, right? he's, he's 10. Yeah, so um, yes, exactly. I didn't want you to know. Right. I figured you'd never notice the missing pieces. So what I did is I hit it. <laughs> right. So from so from my point of view, knocking off the two hanging pieces of crystal was an accident. He didn't mean to do that. He likes to jump up and touch things. He's now tall enough that he can reach the ceiling and so forth. So he, you know, he shows off. He's a he's being 10. I totally understand that. Totally understand that he would by accident knock them off. You know, he tapped them, not realizing that he tapped them hard enough to break them. For me, the the true crime, if you will, was the cover-up. It was throwing them away and not saying anything, which made it impossible for us to fix the chandelier. We now will have a broken chandelier for many years until we decide to replace it. And I looked to my fiance to say something about that to him, and she didn't. And I didn't feel like I could. And that's really what led me to ask her if we could sit down and talk about this, because you know, to me, there should have been some punishment for the cover-up, not the crime, but for the cover-up, because to me, that makes it 10 times worse. I can forgive an accident, but not a bald-faced lie, even if you're trying to protect yourself. So we we talked about it, and I came to understand that she was very open to me disciplining the kids, that in fact, she was almost looking for that, for me to step in and, and do that for her, because it was harder for her to do. And so we agreed, just as you mentioned a minute ago, that when those situations arise, we would sort of huddle about it yes. and decide together what we're going to do. And if it required a punishment that needed to be enforced, I would be the enforcer because I am comfortable doing that. I think in part because I'm a step parent, right? It's harder when you have a, the unique emotional bond with a biological child. As they say, if we could only raise each other's children, the world would be a much better place. And in this case, you know, I can do that. I have no trouble taking his phone away for two nights to punish him for hiding the fact that he broke the chandelier. Now, just to finish that little story, we decided that enough time had passed between the incident and our discussion that it really wasn't right to go back and punish him retroactively for what he had done. But I did talk to him and tell him that in the future, if he breaks something like that, that's fine. You know, we can excuse a mistake or an accident, but don't lie about it afterwards. Come and tell us because again, we might've been able to fix the chandelier had he not thrown those pieces away when he did. And did he, do you think he heard you when you said that? I think so. Yes. And yeah. I also have to say that, you know, they, I don't know if they see me as a parental figure, you know, again, they were six, seven, eight, but they have been so welcoming, you know, into their lives, into their home, uh, that I really am lucky in that regard. Yeah. Lying is this weird thing that kids do. And it's so hard to parent around because it's awful. And yet also it apparently is really, really like, just like you were saying, he doesn't want to, he knows that what he did was wrong or caused damage. Right. And so he's, it's self-preservation, very poorly executed, <laughs> but it's a hard line to walk and everybody has to feel it out for themselves because getting them to believe you that when you say, hey, listen, <laughs> I need for you to be, I really want you to feel safe and be honest with me when stuff goes wrong. 
And I think that you, like, I'll just offer you, I think you hit the nail on the head with the, hey, we would, we may have been able to fix it. And then we would have this beautiful chandelier, mm-hmm. but it, it's a really hard thing. And the only saving grace, which maybe you remember from when your kids were younger, is that kids tend to be a terrible at lying until they're much older. It's pretty easy to catch them. Yeah, that, that is true. I can remember my <laughs> old son was just a bald faced liar. He, when we would play games when he was even four or five, shoots and ladders or what have you, he always cheated. And he just, he just openly cheated. You know, he didn't try to make a, try to hide it or anything. It was always a matter of calling him on it. And he would just, you know, sort of, you know, shrug his shoulders and shake his head. And then the next turn he would cheat again. You know, that's just the- Right. And it is like a sign of creativity in little kids, which is super funny. It's oh, like, all right, let's redirect this creativity. Let me give you some crayons, you know. <laughs> right. Well, I wish I had known that when he was little. It would have been a little easier to to take, although he was pretty cute about it. So it wasn't such a big deal. And he's grown up to be a very honest, upstanding uh, young man. So yes. what about things that may also fall in a dis- disciplinary sort of category, but are, are less punishment? And I don't know how common this is for others, but I was brought up uh, with very strict table manners. My father instilled those in me. And then I also have a master's degree in journalism. I'm a writer. So words are important to me, grammar. And so those two things that are important to me, when I came into the family, they were not instilled in the young kids. And so I have found myself struggling with how often to intercede. You know, there's only so many times I can tell my stepson to stop sort of shoveling his food into his mouth before I feel like I'm just, you know, being a nag and he's not hearing what I have to say. How do I uh, sort of balance wanting to instill good table manners and good grammar, but in a way that they don't either resent me for it or just stop listening to me because I'm such a broken record? So I love this. So the, actually the question that I had initially was because uh, you had said when you sent me the stuff is about manners. And I wondered if it was like interpersonal manners, like etiquette or table manners. So this is a, a fantastic thing to talk about. So you mentioned that you got this because your father instilled table manners um, and in your life. So do you have positive memories of learning about table manners from your dad as a kid? Uh, I don't know that they're entirely positive. I mean, it was pretty strict. You had to do it right. And if you didn't do it right, uh, you got yelled at about it. Okay. So, and then the next thing is, is what, if I ask you why, why do you think that good table manners are important to you? What would you say? Two reasons. Uh, One, because uh, from a selfish point of view, they're a reflection of their parents and so now that I am a step-parent, I feel that it's a reflection of me, uh, how they behave in someone else's house. And I'm entirely aware that children are often, if not always, more well-behaved at a friend's house than they are when they're home, because at home they can just be themselves, and it, they are on their best behavior when they visit a friend. So that's number one. I recognize that. The other is, as I jokingly tell the boys especially, you know, someday you're going to meet a girl. And she's going to invite you over to her house for dinner. And if you go in there and you are slovenly and you shovel your food and you chew with your mouth open and you belch openly at the table, after you leave, their parents are going to take her aside and say, I think you need to dump this guy because did you see his table manners? So those are the two reasons that 
to me, they're important for the kids to learn. And who knows, maybe they'll be invited to the White House one day and I want them to be prepared. It's, I always tell my kids and my stepkids, I'm like, when you have dinner with the Queen of England, it's important that you know this. And they always counter with, it's highly doubtful I'm ever going to have dinner with the Queen of England. In your life, for you, how do you, how do you feel that your table manners have been positive? Like, why are they important to you? Like, it's your manners, like for you. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess it's this sort of the same thing. It's a reflection on my parents and how I was raised and also uh, just sends a message that, you know, this is a well-rounded human being who knows how to behave in more formal, well, not even formal, but, uh, you know, just knows how to behave. Absolutely. hundred percent. Okay. So that is now the next thing to think about, like, is do so you say it was not instilled at them as a young age. How is, does your partner model, um, good manners? Is it something that is significant and important to her? She does model good manners, but she doesn't notice when the kids are not modeling them back. And I will say it's, it's one of them who's sort of the issue that I see not exhibiting very good table manners. And in fact, I have joked with him that if we ever go to Texas to visit my family, I'm going to seat him next to my dad for dinner. And by the time the dinner is over, he will have good manners. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's lots of things going on here, right? Like, so I would always like encourage you as, as a person to remember that you didn't love as a kid having this shoved down your throat. And so probably that's the root part of the root of the discord that happens in you when you begin to feel like a nag like is this really the relationship that I want to have with these young children do I want them to think about me the way I thought about my dad when he was doing that and then you know we talked about tolerance like tolerance for other kids behaviors right it is a nice idea to do a little check like am I just being is I'm just am I just out of practice with eating with a 10 year old at the table like am I have I forgotten how clueless they are about how fast they eat um, and just take a deep breath, right? So you know that old phrase, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. This is when you're dealing with adolescents, something that I find really relevant. Like you can sometimes tell them 925 times, but if they don't want it, they're going to push back even harder. You know, if they, they, if they know that it gets on your nerves, if they know this is important to you, or if they suspect that this is a way to push your buttons, they may just absolutely needle you with this all the time. They may walk in and be like, here are my elbows and here's my open mouth, right? So it's a line to walk. But one of the things is, is that you're modeling just by your existence. And it's so easy for us to forget that as parents, that even if we're not telling them all the time, we are an example of what they're doing. And so when the question comes up in their mind of how should I behave in this situation, if you have been an example of how to eat politely, then that's going to show up. And I share that with you just so that hopefully to quiet the self-talk in your mind, like, is this going to reflect on you when I come back? Like, trust that you have told them, um, trust that they have heard you, even if they have acted like they haven't, and that some piece of it is going to show up. And then the other thing is to praise the heck out of things they do right, right? And so you've got more than one kid at the table and you've got your partner. And so like when something, um, and you, you can overdo this and they will call you on it and make fun of you, but it, it's unbelievably effective with kids. And it always catches me off guard when I remember to do this, but I'm like, oh my gosh, it was such a pleasure 
to like eat with you tonight. I really appreciate how you paid attention to the table manners. You know, I love that. And I just really want to share with you that I loved it tonight. That's a, that's an excellent piece of advice and something that I had not even thought of. I, I talked about that in, in other realms professionally, the importance of uh, praising your employees you know, much more often than you criticize or you know, take them to task or something they may have done wrong. Because if you don't do it that way, then they're just going to curl up into a protective crouch anytime you appear in their door. You want to make sure that they trust you on both fronts, you know, things that you're trying to correct and also things that you think they did very well. And I wish I had had this conversation last week because we had dinner together on Friday night. We actually sat at the dining room table, which is unusual because we usually just sit at the counter in the kitchen and eat. And we had a wonderful dinner. And as I recall, everybody exhibited very good manners and it was just a nice time and I didn't say a word. So maybe I will go home tonight and just say, Hey, I wanted to make point out to you guys how much fun I had at dinner Friday night. It was really fun and, and I enjoyed it. So that's, that's a very good, very good piece of advice. As always, thank you to Jim Cirillo of jimmymgroup.com for our original music and Rachel Greenberger for our original art. If you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover or questions you'd like to ask, please send an email to wtswtgt at gmail.com and please follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive. Brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.